I'm Kim, and welcome to Esoteric's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of May 25th, 2015. Join us this week as we talk with Rami Wiley, co-founder and director of the Caltech Architectural Tour Service, or CATS, and with docent Kenan Brazil of Los Angeles Public Library about the enduring legacy of the East Coast architect Bertram Grovner Goodhue on both of these institutions. So stay tuned. But you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between South Pass and Highland Park, Grand Central Park. It is divine. You can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of May 25th, 2015. This episode, boy, it's been a week or two. This episode, we have interviews with Romy Wiley. She's co-founder and director of the Caltech Architectural Tour Service. This is something she has been doing for 30 years. She is going to talk about Mr. Goodhue, a New York architect, and his legacy to Caltech. Okay? The theme of this podcast episode is Mr. Goodhue. Okay? Bertram Grosvenor Goodhue. Second guest, Canon Brazil. Canon Brazil. Canon Brazil. She is an LAPL Central docent. She is really good. She's the maven, okay? I'm about to use the term Pishka. I'm about to throw out some Yiddish words for the Pishka, so let me just say this. Canon is the maven on all things Goodhue and the Central Los Angeles Central Library. So it's good, it's going to be a great episode. I'm I'm happy to be back. And Kim, don't you were you were looking? I saw you. You were like, oh, I can get up and grab that pen before Richard asks me to talk about the Pishka, but you can't. Pishka maven, tell us about the Pishka. I'll tell you, and I'll tell you too. There's a digital tip jar. It's associated with this podcast. I know we haven't been on the air for a couple weeks. Richard was feeling under the weather. And so many things have happened, all of them in the scheme of things non-trivial. I mean, yeah. all of them trivial in the scheme of things. Like, no one needs to be worried or anything, but no, 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 a no. lot's been going on. Mostly we are porting for the sec- we are porting for the first time our website to a new content management platform. Yes, it is time to get the pen now. And And as we did back in the fall when I upgraded our website on our 12-year-old content management system, Drupal, which I upgraded religiously every three years. As I did then, I did now. Working on the website really hard. Don't publish a podcast. So boring. Pishka Maven, take us away. Right. We also had a sick cat. I mean, there's been a lot going on. But right. All of these things are trivial, though, in the scheme of things. Yeah, We're fine. I know, I know. We're 
we're back. The oven's beeping. Everyone's happy. There is a digital tip jar associated with this podcast. And if you like it and you're so inclined and you'd like to make a contribution, we would be so grateful for your support of our work. It helps in the costs of gasoline and chili reno burritos and, and cups of tea and all the good things that fuel. And t- tamales. And tamales that fuel our work. And um, you can make a donation of any size. We are always so grateful. Never obligatory. Always appreciated. We thank you for your support. Thank you, Kim. Um, so we're going to move into the closely watched train section. Kim, are we going to go get some tamales after we finish recording the podcast? Oh, yeah. We're going to get some tamales because, you know, the thing about historic preservation is sometimes it is a really slow process. This is not something to get into if you need immediate gratification. Um, we, we are talking about an issue which, for all intents and purposes, is a function of public policy. Right, and you're the policy guy. That, that's what I'm, I... I'm just saying that public policy issues take decades. Yeah. yeah. And, and in this case, you mentioned tamales. There's a giant tamale-shaped building that is very much one of our closely watched trains. It is sort of on the border of East Los Angeles and Montebello, but it's officially within the borders of Los Angeles County in East L.A. And uh, it's almost 100 years old. It is the only tamale-shaped building in the world of all time, as far as I'm aware. And it's endangered. The owners of the building uh, two years ago in April put it on the market at, at a teardown price of almost a half a million dollars. The, the, the owners in the article in the L.A. Times said, take it. Yeah. Just come and take it, please. Please. We want to make money. We don't want a tamale. Um, so we sort of shone a light on this this terrible preservation crisis. There was no way to landmark it. There was no way to protect it. And we uh, asked people, as we drew attention to the fact that it had been listed at teardown prices, uh, we asked people to communicate with then um, board of su- su- supervisor, board of su- then member of the board of supervisors. Sorry. You, we, we called Gloria Molina. Gloria Molina, until recently, was a 25-year member of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors. She's a big, bad mo. Yeah, mo-fo. And I was, I was looking for a word similar to councilman for a supervisor, but no, she was a soup. And we let her know how much we cared, and we, we heard back immediately. Um, a lot of other people did as well. Um, we heard back immediately that she did care about the tamal, as she called it, and she wanted to see it saved, and she actually reached out to the property owners and let them know that Knocking it down would kind of be cruel and bad for the neighborhood, and there was probably a solution. The, the building ended up uh, disappearing from the MLS. It was no longer offered for sale. But at the same time, things were moving forward with the new um, historic preservation ordinance for the unincorporated L.A. County areas. And two years later, here we are, a wonderful feature article in the L.A. Times just talking about how this policy is still being developed and interviewing some of the people on the block who don't really care a whole lot about the tamale and interviewing the property owner who basically says, please, take this thing, we want to make money. So, you know, here we are. It's still not protected, but I think we're getting closer, and and I would eat a tamale in honor of our beloved tamale, you betcha. So... So the the article is is the article, not explicitly, but sort of as a side effect, goes through the history of landmark status in unincorporated Los Angeles County, which is really interesting. Um, about two years ago, Part One passed Mills Act for residential structures to qualify in unincorporated Los Angeles County. Part Two passed about six months ago. You could landmark, get historic cultural monument status for building 
in unincorporated sections of Los Angeles County with the owner's signature and as Phil Estes, a uh, someone who's been interviewed on this podcast, uh, explains in the article, um, an HCM, Historic Cultural Monument, application with a little more teeth is coming very soon. So the tamale... So I love reading comments. Did someone really call me a communist? That would be very exciting if no, they did. No, no, no. They didn't explicitly, but they did call us leftists, and they said if, if we care so much, we should buy it. Right. So I, 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 I sort of got you to... I wish they'd called me a communist. That would make me so happy. Well, um, there's still time. I know, okay. Someone go and since I'm a communist, it'll make me happy. Um, so my point of bringing this up is not to is not to receive gratification as to what my grandfather, the racketeer, would think my being called a communist. Um, but that the whole point of this is is not whether I'm a my my beliefs on private property. Um, my my interest in this is that the county of Los Angeles make p- preservation a bigger part of public policy. Okay? That's the point of all of this, not my political beliefs, which don't really map too well. And, you know, the fact of the matter is there are things that are a lot less quirky and a lot less new than the tamale in unincorporated L.A. that are completely un- unprotected, and it is an issue. There isn't a lot of uh, consciousness about historic preservation in these communities. If you look at the L.A. historic preservation map that I've created on, on Google and I've been adding to for several years, there are huge empty spots. When you zoom in on the tamale, it's kind of the tamale and nothing else around it. That doesn't mean there aren't important buildings that are endangered around there. We just don't hear about it because unlike a lot of other communities in L.A., county, in the wider county, and the city. Um, no one's blogging about it, no one's tweeting about it, things just disappear and nobody notices. And we, we've First street murals. I know. Yay, Gloria Molina. Well, the murals have apparently been protected, but there's going to be a, a charter school there, and at some point, maybe the, who knows where the murals are, they're supposed to go up. We have other things to talk about. We would like to raise consciousness about the value of historic preservation, both as something that makes your community stronger, and also as an economic engine, because historical buildings draw people to you, and you'll make money from it. So, save the tamale. Thank you, Kim. I'm gonna I'm gonna call Liliana's as soon as we finish recording and have them get our order to go ready. So it'll be there when I pick it up. And I'll have to remember to leave the house with some cash. Kim, you know what? The cats are just gonna kill each other because that's what they do. And we're going to continue with the podcast, darling. I know that we're all so happy Dashiell's recovered from his surgery. Very well. Thank you. You ready now to talk about sound on Broadway, Kim? Yeah, I am. There was a concert. I don't actually know the name of it because I just, my, my complete contempt for this idiotic abuse of public space is to the point that I, I couldn't even tell you the proper name of the concert. So go ahead, Kim. May 16th. Seven days ago, the mayor of Los Angeles decided to become an event promoter. Again. Yeah. So let me... No, I think... I think technically the Graham Park thing, he wasn't really the event promoter. I think he definitely upped... If you carefully look at how this event was... This event on the 16th went forward, you will see an, an increase in magnitude in his involvement. Well... I have a lot to say about the L.A. Aoki event. I guess that's how you say it. Steve Aoki is this quote-unquote DJ. I mean, he just plays with a laptop. He's very popular on the the dance, the EDM circuit, which is not 
the kind of music I listen to because, you know, I'm a punk rocker, but whatever. It's fine. Kids like to rock out. Um, this concert was announced with a very short notice, and it was not uh, announced for Grand Park, where the mayor's last big event was held. It was announced uh, with the closure of Broadway. We were a little concerned about it because it was the same date as our once-a-year Tom Waits bus tour. But as you know, it- I'm, I'm always concerned about street closures in downtown Los Angeles. Yeah. Okay, any day of the week, my blood pressure goes up. But if it's on a Saturday, I'm yeah. already like, ah, I hate everyone. I need Sarah Hernandez's cell phone number now. <laughs> right, and I don't even want to go into that. I mean, as it turned out, we were able to get across downtown, and it was fine. Um, and we, we even missed the big gas leak in Hollywood on that tour. Everything went smoothly. When I got home and I looked on the Internet, I saw that people had a lot of complaints with the, um, the uh, sound check. Uh, obviously, when you close several blocks of Broadway in the historic theater district from, say, 5th to 2nd, 7th um, to 2nd? 7th to 2nd. 7th to 2nd. I mean, a lot of people live in the buildings in the immediate couple of blocks around there. People do live on Broadway now. People live on Spring. And um, people in the community had been complaining leading up to this event because they said, hey, this is supposedly a free concert that the mayor's having on public streets, but we don't have tickets, and it's fenced. And all of the free tickets went immediately to club kids who were sharing the links online. And now we can buy a $100 VIP ticket if we want, but what do we need a VIP ticket for because it's happening on our street? So there was a lot of antagonism. And as I began looking at the Facebook chatter, I saw people were really, really upset because of the sound. Um, people were standing outside with decibel meters, which uh, readers, which you can have on your phone, and they were getting readings above 100 decibels, which is illegal in the city of Los Angeles by quite a bit. Uh, they were getting readings in their apartments of over 100 decibels, which isn't only illegal, it's damaging to property. I was seeing reports of uh, pictures falling off walls, which is to be expected. There was also a really sad uh, posting by a gentleman who said that his pregnant girlfriend had started throwing up from the volume, and that he tried to drive her out of their building, but he couldn't because they'd blocked their parking, so he had to walk her to a bar. There were also a lot of upset animals. And so I understand many people consider this an imposition. You know, they live downtown. They don't really appreciate all of the noise. They don't like their dogs hiding under the building. Kim, it's, it's criminal what the mayor of Los Angeles did. Okay, criminal negligence. Also, um, something that I thought was... And I'm getting up to something that no one has talked about. I really am. Okay, but let's just, just the, the, the big issue here is, is that this is just an egregious abuse of public space. The mayor of Los Angeles took over a really busy intersection. Okay. Several. Maybe at 7 p.m. it's not a really busy intersection, but up until then it is. And they had it closed for most of the afternoon. Yes. And it made a huge racket. Like... Like, rackets, most people that don't attend really loud rock shows or raves even can begin to understand in their own home. And it's, it's just egregious. It's unacceptable. And you can now proceed to the finer points at hand. Okay. And as a punk rocker who likes music with chords and instruments, um, you know, this kind of music is really, really hard to appreciate if you're not into it. It, it doesn't sound like any music that people who are interested in more traditional forms of music. Nor, nor, normal people. Okay. Yeah. Nor, normal people don't like this music. Yet. No, they don't. I don't like reggae. Whatever. So, people had lots of complaints. I was disturbed that in order to get one of these free tickets, you had to sign up for a mailing list for the mayor's nonprofit volunteer corps. 
that seems like kind of an abuse too, to get people's email addresses, to use it as a marketing tool, to use public streets. But here's the thing. I started thinking about, once I saw the, the decibel reading and I heard about the woman throwing up and, I, and things falling off the walls, I started thinking about something someone told us on Broadway, that they had been on Broadway and they noticed a large chunk of the terracotta, the decorative plaster slash, well, clay, um, the glazed clay from one of the theaters, I'm not going to say which one, um, one of the historical National Register theaters on Broadway had actually fallen to the sidewalk. Hadn't hurt anyone, hadn't completely shattered. It was an important piece. This person cares about downtown. He knows the owners of the building. He knows his way around. He was able to put this piece of terracotta somewhere safe. The buildings downtown, the buildings on Broadway, are part of a completely unique and very special theater district that is on the National Register because there are more theaters in close proximity than anywhere else in the world. The landlords who own these buildings are neglectful. They do not. Couldn't, could, couldn't care less. Just despise that they're anchored to these structures, wish they could demolish all of them, deeply resent personal promises by prior mayors about how they could transform and unload these structures into giant nightclubs, which is not happening. In some cases, yes. That's a little strong. The buildings are, without a doubt, neglected. No one is looking at these buildings and saying, is the terracotta beginning to be unsafe? Should something be done to anchor these elements that are almost 100 years old, that are rusting, that are subject to all sorts of decay, that are sometimes hit by trucks? That just doesn't happen. So I started thinking about whether anyone had done studies on sound of over 100 decibels comparable to airplane engines on historic structures. And sure enough, I found that the Naval Surface Warfare Center, Stahlgren Library, in August of 2010, actually did a very interesting study on six historic structures, a noise and vibration measurement study based on proximity to um, airfields. Now, didn't read the entire study because it's not my job, but I skimmed through it enough to know that, you know, this is kind of interesting science, and I can assure you Ain't nobody in the city of Los Angeles knows anything about this or gave any thought to what potential damage was being done to delicate structures, including neon signage, on these historic National Register properties. Are more things going to fall off of the theaters because of this caterwaul, which they're now promising another one of? Are, is someone going to be hit by a falling piece of plaster or terracotta? Hey, it killed someone in Chicago a few years ago. It happens. I think it's incredibly irresponsible, and I don't think we're going to know what damage may or may not have been done. And I'm simply going to refer to the good people at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, my favorite museum, my favorite large museum in the world, um, who in... What, it was, was the police museum in Los Angeles your favorite small museum? Um, you know, I wish that the police museum in Los Angeles would be more uh, open to scholarship. I hear that from people. I hear that from scholars. I, I, you know, I, I support the work of my friends at the Police Museum. You, you really, you got to open up. Um, the Victorian Albert Museum in London in 2013 scheduled what would have been a really interesting event, a concert by Napalm Death, black metal band. Um, and they were going to use a, a, a gallery that was under renovation in the European galleries. And they thought, you know, hey, we've got this semi-open gallery space. Let's bring in this really loud, aggressive, obnoxious band. 
not one of my favorites, but, you know, recognizable as music. And they're going to use the special ceramic sound system, which an artist named Keith Harrison created based on the tiles used in the building on the Bustleholm Mill Estate in West Bromwich, London, where he grew up. And these ceramic tiles in the sound system were actually meant to shatter at high volume. So it was basically using music as a weapon with the potential for mass destruction. I mean, clearly they were going to be contained. They weren't going to send shards out into the audience. But this was an art piece being done with music and sound in the V&A. And on closer consideration, the curators and the spokespeople for the museum actually canceled the event over fears that high decibel levels could damage the fabric of the building. Um, they... they said the safety of our visitors and building remains our priority at all times, and so with regret, they canceled this event. That is a responsible treatment of landmark properties. Putting a giant sound system in the middle of Broadway with absolutely no consciousness of the fact that you could be causing permanent damage to historic structures no, really, can't, can't really bothers stop, me. Stop, stop. Stop. Everything you said putting a giant sound system at 5th and Broadway with no concern for the well-being of the people who live there is, is unconscionable. Okay, it's, 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 it, the, the mayor is a schmuck for doing this. Okay, no, really. Okay, not a good guy. Really, abuse of the public trust by which he was elected. Okay, getting deeper and deeper, a really good point is what no one's talking about, because they're still trying to recover their hearing, and you weren't there so you don't have hearing loss, is concern about damage to the buildings, which, yes. is, which is a very good side effect concern. Okay, And I really want to emphasize that. We are horrified at the impact this had on the community that lives there. This is totally unacceptable. Totally agree. And, and I'm absolutely sympathetic. And I just was kind of proud of myself coming up with something no one else had come up with yet which I think is a real issue, and as a historic preservationist, um, I'm very troubled. Also, I'm looking at the Los Angeles City Sound Ordinance, and I see multiple violations of the ordinance, including Section 11206, Places of Public Entertainment. It shall be unlawful for any person to operate, play, or permit the operation or playing of any radio, television receiver, etc., 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 sound amplification equipment at a sound level greater than 95 decibels at any point that is normally occupied by a customer, unless a conspicu conspicuous and legible sign is located outside such a place near each public entrance stating, Warning! Sound levels within may cause hearing impairment. That's in people's apartments causing hearing impairment. Also... It is prohibited to have any amplified sound in residential zones and within 500 feet thereof. Period. It's illegal. Okay. We have to move on, Kim. Okay. We have to move on. Richard. God bless the mayor. I'm, I, I can't wait for him to run for U.S. Senate and leave us alone. And finally... We'll, we'll have some links to the Facebook chatter. There was a lot of it. People started multiple threads. I think they were very scattered and overwhelmed. The most interesting thing about all this is, after all those free tickets were snapped up, hardly anyone came. Because people will take free tickets on the Internet. They'll probably try to sell them. When they fail to sell them, they won't show up for your concert. Period. That is Event Planning 101. Welcome to the industry, Mayor. Kim, let's um, switch some closely watched trains around. Yes. Let's start with the uh, Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority, which is a joint county-city 
agency formed about 20 years ago. Um, this is the agency that is tasked with the continuum of care. The continuum of care is a bureaucratic abstraction discussed much on this podcast because it is the abstraction um, through which care is administered to people experiencing homelessness. Um, the efficacy of this abstraction and it and the rubber hitting the road with this abstraction is something that we debate to no end on this podcast. Uh, the Los Angeles Homelessness Services Authority does one of many things. Uh, one of them is it has a biannual homeless count. Uh, the January 2015 figures are out and they're up 12%. And I am hopeful, having spoken to several people in the office of the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, that I'll be able to interview Peter Lynn, the new director of the Los Angeles Homelessness Service Authority, uh, not particularly about the numbers, but just sit down and talk about this entity, which is really important, powerful, and not a lot of people really have any sense of. So I'll leave it to you to um, talk about the numbers if you want, but that's that's what I wanted to say when, when you sent this to me. Well, actually, I called his office and pretty much got someone to agree it'd be a good idea to let me interview him. Well, all I want to say about the numbers is how, how how sad and heartbreaking it is that so many people in our city are on the streets, and uh, I wish I wish we can get our head around how to help them. Right. Uh, second, uh, next closely watched rank, closely related, uh, LA Times article several weeks ago, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department has joined a nationwide drive to divert mentally ill offenders from local jails. Okay, so this is, we're, we're just sort of calling this out, keeping track, it's a closely watched train because the county of Los Angeles, the Sheriff's Department, which is a county service, county department, the Sheriff's Department is the largest provider for the mentally ill in the United States of America. Uh, the Sheriff's Department, as in their correctional facilities, is the largest provider. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors has been talking for several years about tearing down Men's Central Jail and putting up a psychiatric hospital. Um, this is a really complicated, convoluted wedge issue. Drives, polarizes people on what they think about it. And is completely at odds with what general consensus amongst people, um, a lot of whom work for the Los Angeles Homelessness Service Authority, feels the solution for Skid Row, which is decentralization. Um, so that's, I'm just throwing that out there. This is the, the sheriff is involved in a national task force. This is a really good thing because they have to get the number of people who are mentally ill out of the Los Angeles County jails. And I, oh, I, one last thing I want to mention. The county is paid to incarcerate and care for the mentally ill in their jails. This is, this is now part of, so it, 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 it gets complicated. Yes, it does. It really does. Okay. Kim, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that as I'm going to move on. Right. No, I, you don't need to say anything. It's totally screwed up. I know. I, I know, Kim. I'm not mad at you. Okay. I'm not mad either. We, we give this Skid Row history walking tour once a year, and so somewhat like this biannual count, you know, we get to take the temperature of things, and, and we do see it getting worse, and we see more younger, deeply troubled people, and it's just heartbreaking. I, I 
I don't know what to say. All right. You will know you'll you will know what to say about this, Kim. Okay. City Council has made Norm's restaurant on La Cienega an historic cultural monument. Well, that was a no brainer. I mean, boy, have you ever seen such public support for a preservation issue? No one called anyone a commie. Everyone just said, What? Some Yahoo just bought norms and wants to tear it down and turn the surrounding parking lot into Abbott Kinney West? Are they, or East, I guess? Are they crazy? And then, oh, Chris Nichols did the best thing I've ever seen him do as a journalist. He went and he interviewed this dude, Jason Ilulian, and the um, architect who's working with him from Hodgetts and Bung. I think, and um, basically just let them talk and print it in, on the L.A. Magazine website, uh, Illulian's brilliant plan for getting rid of all of the losers who like norms. And boy, that, that just raised a lot of consciousness. Um, so, yeah, norms as one of the last Googie buildings. Of course, they lost some really great Googie buildings before this one got landmarked. But one of the great Googie coffee shops is a historic cultural landmark, and it has some protection from demolition, but there's nothing stopping uh, Mr. Lulian from evicting the diner and putting, you know, a fancy burger joint in there, if that's what he wants to do. But hopefully he's uh, aware that the public is really, really annoyed and would like to keep norms there, and, and let's hope for the best, you know. Thoughts have wings, Kim. Mm. Thoughts have wings. Um, Kim, I'm going to let you you sort of just take us home with this one. Case study house number 18, Pacific Palisades, on the National Register. Yes. It's up for sale, and I think this is a, akin to the the the, the, the long prey, Bukowski de long prey situation where it was listed for sale, and, and the notion of a teardown is, is in the, the copy of the for sale notice. Yeah, although there's a six and a half million dollar teardown, if it is a teardown. A lot of these houses on large lots on the west side are really doomed. People people will buy a very, very grand architecturally significant house, but National Register kind of doesn't mean anything to certain people who just want a great lot on the beach. Uh, it's over on Chautauqua in the hundred block. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, 199. Yeah. It, it may or may not survive. It, I think it's always sad, though, when people own a house like this, you know, the, those, those case study houses which were constructed under the Aegis of Art and Architecture magazine were all made for families who really cared, and in many cases they're kept in the same family for many, many years, and... It would be okay if before the old generation passes it on to their kids, they put something in their will or trust saying this needs to be preserved. Or, or, or they just make it a municipal historic cultural monument themselves and mm-hmm. let their kids figure it out. Or they do an easement. All this stuff is possible. I think when you put these things on the market, you are kind of saying, I don't care. And that's sad, because at one point, you or someone very close right. to you did. Right, but we're really, as always, with the tamale, I'm not interested in the building owners. I'm not interested in the owner's concerns. I'm not interested in the buyer's concerns. I'm interested in the government entity which oversees the building Department of Building and Safety, under which this sale or any additions are going to go, is going to happen under... And for this, it is Ken Bernstein in the Office of Historic Resources, our dear friend. And so we must ask, so what, what is this process? Um, without municipal HCM status, ostensibly the California Environmental CEQA. CEQA, Environmental Environmental Quality Act, 
demands that the Los Angeles Department of Building and Safety's Office of Historic Resources oversee a environmental impact report which would evaluate the historical significance of the structure and what a demolition permit, granting a demolition permit, would, would mean in, in light of the EIR. So this just becomes really complicated. And, and you have to ask, is a permit going to get demo permit going to get issued without that red flag being thrown? And so I think that's that's when you say you're concerned. That's explicitly what you're concerned about is that is that the Office of Historic Resources will not be able to provide a proper review per sequel with an environmental impact report on which developers always lie. And something I'd just like to throw out because you know, it's a digital world, and there are a lot of blogs now that specialize in real estate. And I really appreciate the fact that every time a building gets listed for sale, uh, people are sucking up these feeds, and they're noticing when architecturally significant buildings go up. And in this case, I spotted this on Curbed, and people are talking about it, talking about what the listing means, looking at historic images of the building and at contemporary ones, and critiquing the design and talking about what the options are. And that's a great thing, you know? If nothing else, at least things aren't just going up on the market very, very invisibly, and the only people who are aware of them are people who are working directly with realtors. It is, it is really a much better time for consciousness and awareness of endangered buildings. And, you know, if, if anyone out there really cares... You can write a landmarking application. It'll be easy because the National Register was not easy to get. And you can pull that file and look at it and copy it for L.A. Good tip, Kim, for the kids at home listening. Hey, do you want to talk about the email I got anonymously from the 8th grader? We can keep this at an anonymous level. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe she's listening to the podcast. I couldn't respond to her because she wrote to us from a, 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 an elementary school email address, which blocked a Gmail response. Um, she was working on a school paper about, guess what, the Cecil Hotel and Alyssa Lamb and, and murder. Why, why is an eighth grader assigned a report on Alyssa Lamb? I assure you, she asked to be able to do this. Okay. But I don't know how much research she was actually doing. I mean, she sent a very polite email, which we were unable to respond to. Uh, I tried. Um, asking you, Mr. Shave, even though I'm the true crime person, asking you, <clears throat> when you were working at the Cecil Hotel in the 1980s and 90s, when the serial killers were living there, did anyone other than you know that murders were being committed? Well, first of all, because I was in eighth grade in 1982... <laughs> I, I, I really empathize with our eighth grade friend in Michigan, but uh, I just, I, 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 I love this alternate reality in which you are like this guy who works at the Cecil Hotel, who, who knows there are murderers, but no one will listen to you. So if someone wants to go write that movie, go write it and, and we'll sign off on it. And you can even use Richard's first name for the character. Thank you, Kim. Okay, let's, um, upcoming events. Uh, the Lava Salon is back. We've been off air for a couple of weeks, so we haven't been able to do a lot of lead-up, but I'm really happy that this coming Sunday, our friend Kristen Bedford is going to be talking at our monthly Lava Salon, May Sunday, May 31, 2 p.m. to 4.30. Kristen is one of my favorite people, formerly of Kristen's List, one of my favorite mailing lists in the whole world. She's back in Los Angeles. Um, she's going to be talking about work she's done with a group in Pennsylvania, uh, the group around Father Divine. She photographs spiritual groups, 
and her focus is how do you photograph? How can you, through photography, begin to express feelings, the notions of the divine, which is interesting because it's, it's difficult to write about the divine. So you immediately think, oh, well, maybe if you're, you're trying to represent the divine visually, that would be easier because words fail to express notions of totality beyond conception. It's harder with photographs. And that's, that's what her work is about. It's how you can, through photography, begin to... Well, I don't want to get... I don't want to start putting words into her mouth. But it, it, it's, it's really, she's really good. Very gifted. And at the end of this, the last 15, 20 minutes after she'll be t- talking about this Pennsylvania work she's done, she'll talk about L.A. work. And, and what I should mention for anyone who's listening to this and their eyes are kind of glazing over because it's spiritual, uh, the followers of Father Divine live in a magnificent mansion which they have been in since the 1930s. And it's one of the most extraordinary spaces you've ever seen in your life. And, and Kristen went and lived with them and um, documented okay. yeah, this. I, this I, I'm, yeah. I'm going to get to that. Well, I, just, okay. you know, I want people okay. to know they're going to see some beautiful I'm, buildings. I'm, and, I'm, yeah. Okay, so, so we've, we've signed an agreement with Kristen, literally signed an agreement about PR about this, is very specific. And I think I may have just stepped over it in trying to use the term vocabulary. But what, what I will say for people that want a sense of who this group is, who Father Divine, this really charismatic African-American minister came out of Harlem in the 30s. He had a sermon. He was giving a sermon that Johnny Mercer listened to. And the opening, the, the refrain for his sermon was accentuate the positive. <laughs> Johnny Mercer came home and wrote the song, Accentuate the Positive. So this is just, just gives you a little breath and scope. And we're going to stop talking about That's it. Because, because I, and, and, and I'm doing, and I love her, and I'm not going to, I don't, I don't want her to email me and be mad at me, because I, fact, I, don't, I don't want the factory defaults to get reset on this one. So let's just, let's just everyone come to this event. It's great. Register, it's free. It's free. Okay. 2 to 4, Library Bar, across the street. 2 to 4.30, Library Bar, across the street from the Central Library, which is a topic of discussion today. And it would, at this point, we really need to get into our interview topics. Ken in Brazil is our second interview t- subject. I'll introduce her first. Kenan is a docent. And she's so, you know, I love it. She's, just, she's a docent. She's so together. She's so together. She's authored a, a number, a, a great deal of content recently pushed through the LAPL Central History blog. We're going to link to a landing page for a lot of it. Um, she's great. So we're going to talk to her about Goodhue. Goodhue, so let me just talk about Goodhue in general, and I'll spend a couple sentences on canon, and then we can immediately get to, to Romy. Um, so Goodhue is Romy. this... Romy. Did I see Romy? Romy. Yeah. Uh, we can immediately get to Rami. So, Goodhue is this incredibly important New York architect who makes a huge impact at the Panama Exhibition of 1915. In San Diego. In San Diego at Balboa Park. We have a whole podcast interview with Brian Kaiser on just the tile from this and how it relates to Rufus Keeler. We're not even going to go into that. With Kenan, 
we're gonna um, just we're, we're just gonna get this great saga of how the central library was built and Goodhue's role. It's engaging and growth. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's it's really it's a really great interview. It's um it's a long one because we cover a lot of ground. So that's and and so before I forget, docents. So she's a docent. Docent tours are every day. The library is open. The library, thanks to Measure L, is open every day now again. So great that that a former mayor of Los Angeles had to make the taxpayers go ahead and vote something in so they could keep the library open seven days a week, by the way. Docent tours are every day. Canon helps organize these uh, and created the interpretation. They even have special tours now just to the McGuire Gardens. So really just, she's the best, okay? It's a great interview. Uh, everything's going to be on the URL, and we'll that'll be the, the second interview. So our first interview, we're going to talk with with Romy, and Romy is the co-founder and director of the Caltech Architectural Tour Service. Okay? Anagram? Cats. Right. She's doing this 30 years. Okay? 30 years. This is a, uh, this is under the ages of the Caltech Women's Club. This tour, which she has created and is in charge of, they have tours, uh, third Thursday of the month, um, Around the holidays and in July and August, it gets a little tricky. So look at the website, and she'll go into that in detail. But this tour, it's about two hours. You start at the Athenaeum, which is a George Kaufman structure, 1930. Uh, and you just go through the pre-war part of campus, the classic historic campus, and you get the story of Goodhue as the master planner for Caltech. And it's it's a great story. They're great buildings. Um, tile is a huge part of it. And so Romy has just done a fantastic job pulling all this together. It's 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 a great two-hour tour, and I'm just so happy that we're able to create this this good hue doubleheader because because he's such an important Los Angeles architect. He just really just in in the early 1920s, right before his death, really is a huge impact that is still very real today. And I will say as we we fade away and go in, into our first interview about Caltech, I will just ask, I would just wonder aloud, what would have happened if Goodhue had gotten the commission for City Hall? Because when you look at Central, when you look at Caltech, when you look at Central Library, which is such an important, important public space in Los Angeles, um, the sculpture around that, the iconography, the whole notion of what a public building does and the ideas it conveys, it, you just have to ask, boy, what if what if Goodhue and Laurie with Alexander as the iconographer had gotten to do City Hall? You know, you really, what, boy, Occupy would have been great against that backdrop. So, so let's take it away with my interview with Ronnie. Romy, Romy, we're here with you. We're at Caltech. We're at the bookstore in the middle of campus, and I would like you to properly introduce yourself and tell us about uh, the architecture tour program that you're involved with. My name is Romy Wiley. I am co-founder and director of the Caltech Architectural Tour Service, better known as CATS. We have been uh, doing tours of the campus for the last 30 years, and we are a service of the Caltech Women's Club. 
Our tours focus mostly on the historic campus, which was designed by the architect, nationally renowned architect Bertram Grosvenor Goodhue. And the eastern end of the campus, where the Athenaeum and the South Student Houses are, was designed by Gordon Kaufman. Perfect, perfect. Take a breath, because you're doing great. You're doing great. All right, so let's, um, so these tours, which you've been, which you are a core part of, these tours are the, the fourth Thursday of every month. There's a URL. We have it on the webpage here. People just go to the URL, use the contact form, sign up. There are no tours in the month of November or December. Oh. It's a tour in November. Oh. It's on the third Thursday of November because oh, okay. of Thanksgiving. Okay. There's no, there's no tour in December. And then there's some summer months that are off because of campus. July and August. No tours in July and August because it's too hot and most of us go away at okay. vacation time. Perfect. Okay, so let's get to the heart of this interview. And the heart of this interview is you're going to explain to us the master plan that Goodhue was brought in to develop for the core of campus. And that maps very nicely to the, the tour. That, that is offered, and that, that's what this two-hour tour is. So why don't we emotionally, even though we're at the bookstore, let's go back to the Athenaeum, which is the Kaufman structure, and, and you'll just bring us up to speed on why we're starting at a building that's not, that's not Bertrand Goodyear. Well, the tour starts at the Athenaeum, which is the faculty club of Caltech, and a very beautiful, elegant building in the Spanish Renaissance slash Mediterranean style, designed by the British architect Gordon Kaufman, who came to Pasadena because his wife uh, needed, had health problems. He, when he was hired to design the Athenaeum, it was in 1930, and the master architect Bertrand Goodhue had died unexpectedly in 1924, and it had become increasingly difficult for the administration to work with an architectural firm in New York City. So they decided, um, when it came time to develop the Eastern End, to hire a local architect, and Gordon Kaufman was chosen. He carried on the spirit of Goodhue's theme, and so his, although his style of architecture is a little richer in detail and more elaborate, uh, which is probably appropriate for residential buildings, and the Athenaeum is the grandest of all the buildings. It's called the jewel of the campus. It has beautiful reception rooms, um, wonderful ceilings done by Giovanni Smaraldi, who was a famous ceiling designer, and a grand dining room. And then from there, um, the tour follows basically the main pathway through the campus, which we call as the east-west axis. We passed the South Student Houses, which were also designed by Gordon Kaufman, and they are a group of four houses with um, courtyards that link them together and arcades. The, the main uh, intent of the houses was that they were small units closely connected to other units, so the students could have an identity with their house but have competition with um, fellow students in other houses. And so the, the houses are built around the courtyards, and the courtyards are essential to the architecture of the building. They're created by the building itself, 
They're a wonderful place for gatherings, for just meeting people occasionally passing through. You're doing great. Just everything's great. Let's take a breath. I don't want to get too lost in details yet. I want to take a step back. No, I mean, you're doing great. The, we, we start with the Athenaeum uh, Kaufman structure, but let's take a step back and talk about the whole concept of a master plan for Caltech. And to do that, I think you need to give us just a sense of what this institution was in 1922, 1923. And, and it, was, it was one of the, the great intellectual centers of the world. So just take a second and just give us, you know, the notion that, that we're the, the forces behind this master plan. Caltech actually started out as Troop University, founded in 1891 by a man called Amos Troop. There was no institute of higher learning at that time in Pasadena, and he felt that there was a, a need for a university. In 1907, George Array Hale, who was director of the Mount Wilson Observatory, joined Troop's Board of Trustees and felt that it was really important for this growing area of California to have an institute of science and technology and that the university that had been founded, which was really focused on manual arts training, needed to change its focus and become much more a college of science and technology. So Hale was the one who really made that change. And in 1910, the Troop University, as it was called then, or Troop College, moved from buildings in downtown Pasadena to this campus, which is bordered by Hill, Wilson, California, and San Pasquale. And at that time, it was approximately 28 acres. It had been, the land was given by a man called Arthur Fleming. And Hale had the vision that this campus should be planned as a unit with a style of architecture appropriate for California. And although Myron Hunt and Elmer Gray were initially hired to develop a master plan and to design the first building, Troop Hall, it was Bertram Grosvenor Goodhue, a nationally renowned architect from New York City, that Hale selected to develop his ideal campus. So the idea was to have a campus with a, a main theme, and the theme was to be Spanish revival architecture. Perfect. Perfect. Let's just do one more bit of backstory, and I think that would have to be the 1915 exhibition in, in Panama, which I think turned, with, yeah, the 1915 ex exhibition at Balboa Park, and just that, that was the last piece of the puzzle. Myron Hunt is no longer the architect. Goodhue is brought in, and just explain that, and then we can just jump in to the Guggenheim Aeronautics Lab. Okay. So, the, what had uh, excited George L. Rahel was a visit to the 1915 Panama California Exposition in Balboa Park, which Goodhue had designed and had just been opened. And he saw there what he felt was the work of a true genius who had created this wonderful Spanish-style city. And he felt that that's what Caltech needed. So he persuaded the trustees to hire him. So Myron Hunt and Elmer Gray were, were dropped from the whole scene, and Bertram Goodhue was brought in as the master architect. And he immediately started drawing up the plan and working to design the academic buildings that were needed. 
as we walked we walked past the dormitories um, done by Gordon Kaufman, and now we enter the academic part of the campus. And the Guggenheim building was designed actually by the Good Goodhue Associates, the architectural firm of Bertram Goodhue. Bertram Goodhue died unexpectedly in 1924, so only a few years after he'd begun work on the master plan. He had designed and completed four buildings, and then his architectural firm continued with the master plan and completed 11 more buildings of the original scheme. So the Guggenheim building, aeronautics building, which was done in 1928, was part of the Gucci master plan. And all of those buildings on either side are defining the axis that runs all the way through the campus. Perfect, perfect. So just keeping with this, this walk, which mimics this tour, um, there's a memorial garden, and that that is the so yeah. Tell us about the memorial garden because there's a lot of a lot of rich backstory that's not obvious. After passing the Guggenheim building, we come up to a beautiful garden which is on a slight rise. This is called the Troop Memorial Garden, and it's the location of the original building, Troop Hall, which was designed by Byron Hunt and Elmer Gray, but it was damaged um, in the 19. 71 Selma earthquake and following that it was decided to pull it down because it was going to have too much cost and difficulty um, reworking it because there was no uh, interior steel, it was all uh, clay tile walls and it was going to be a really tough job to rebuild it, rework it. So, and it wasn't part of the go-to plan, so it was torn down. Perfect. Okay, so I think emotionally we're we're ready to wrap this up because right past the Memorial Garden we have the Flewellen and Moody 1966 Robert Milliken <laughs> Memorial Library. So do you do you want to just sort of give us take us to the to the end of the pre-war master plan and 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 look ahead to Caltech in in, in post-war. As, as we pass through the Troop Garden, it takes us into the central courtyard, and all around the central courtyard are buildings that were part of the master plan, part of the Bertram Goodhue plan, that linked by arcades, which became a unifying element on the campus, and they provide shade and shelter, as well as just linking the buildings and creating a kind of urban front to all of them. So beyond them, all the way to Wilson, are some of the Goodhue Associate buildings and part of the main master plan of Goodhue. And so, do, 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 why, why don't you call out those buildings, please, yes. explicitly? Yeah. Um, on the, on the uh, south side are the geology buildings of Arms and North Mud, and in between them is uh, what was an astrophysics building, is now a center for global environmental sciences. And on the northern perimeter of that courtyard are the biology buildings of Kirchhoff, West and East Kirchhoff. And all of them have beautiful decoration on them that is part of the Spanish uh, Renaissance or Spanish colonial revival designs of Bertrand Goodhue. Um, Kirchhoff Hall was important because it was the first biology department outside. Do you want to just mention that briefly? Yeah, because that, that was really interesting. Right. The first Kirchhoff building was designed to bring Thomas Hunt Morgan here to develop the first uh, division of biology as opposed to botany and zoology. 
So this was the first time that biology as a subject in itself was established here at Caltech. And that building was uh, built, designed and built in 1928, just before the Depression. The Depression hit and everything else was put on hold for 10 years, and then in 1938 the buildings were completed in that courtyard at the end. Perfect. Um, this, I think, puts us in the middle of that axis at the Fluellen and Moody Robert Millican Memorial. Right. Oh. And then coming around um, really at the center just before you go from the central courtyard to the western end is the uh, central library, the memorial library, which is called the Millican Memorial Library, designed by Flowellen and Moody, architects of Los Angeles. And this building really belongs to what we call the post-war campus. It was completed in 1966 following World War II when the campus expanded rapidly to the north. Uh, all building had been put on hold during the war and was picked up very rapidly afterwards. And here we see a very radical change because the idea of regional architecture gave way to a universal modernism. And all of the original leaders, like um, the original Millikan and Hale, all of them had either retired or died. The architectural firm of the Goodyear Associates had been disbanded during the war and never formed again. So nobody really knew how to carry on or had a thought of carrying on the original master plan or the original scheme. So the new campus was built with many different types of architectural styles. There were master plans and the buildings were located, but different architectural firms did them, and we ended up with what we call an eclectic mix of functional buildings. You did it. Perfect. You, you, you did it. You did it. Um, that was fantastic. I want you to remind everyone about the tours and when they occur, roughly, at that, that start at the Athenaeum. The tours are given on the fourth Thursday of each month, except November, which is the third Thursday. And there are no tours in December because of Christmas, or July and August because of the summer vacation time. The tours start at 10.30 and usually run about two hours. And um, it's a fairly extensive walk across the campus. Uh, and there is a website to sign up and find more detail about and information on the tours and the different offerings. Perfect. And then, of course, in the bookstore, that, do you want to tell people about things that they can pick up in the bookstore, too? The bookstore, which is in the center of campus, just near a, a cafeteria, um, has a, a book that I have written, Bertram Goodhue, um, sorry, Caltech's Architectural Heritage, from Spanish Tower to Modern Stone, which was published in 2000 and is available, and that gives a complete history of the campus. And following that, there is also a book on Bertram Goodhue's uh, residential work and his life called Bertram Goodhue, His Life and Residential Architecture. And in addition to that, there's a little booklet um, giving just a brief uh, camp notes on the campus tour. And also a very new offering is a DVD, which is of a lecture that I give to the alumni every May and was filmed along with some live shots around the campus of me talking about the architecture. Rami, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, my name is Frank Gallagher, and I'm here in uh, San Marino, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine.
Kenan, Kenan, I'm here with you. We're in the Goodhue building of the Richard J. Reardon Central Library for the city of Los Angeles. We're at 5th, 5th and Grand, basically. We, the whole block, but basically 5th and Grand. Kenan, I need you to properly introduce yourself and explain to us about the program which you are a part of, which is part of the library. Okay, um, I'm Kenan Brazil. I'm one of the LA Central docents. We do free tours of the library. Every day the library is open. Monday through Friday we do tours at 12.30, Saturday at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m., Sunday at 2 p.m. They all meet at the bookstore. Again, let me emphasize they're free. You don't have to make any reservations. You just have to show up and we'll give you a tour. We've got a new tour of the McGuire Gardens, and, and we talk a lot about the, the big art projects that are part of the McGuire Garden. That's once a week, 1230. Same circumstances, free, no reservations, meet at the bookstore. Perfect, and um, I, I will put all of this. Every podcast has its own URL, has its own webpage. There's a section for hyperlinks hyperlink to the docent tour and your new architecture page. We'll each get a hyperlink, but uh, you have a Twitter feed, but let's just have you explicitly call that out so so everyone listening is happy that you've, 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 you've checked off your list of things to do. We have a new Twitter feed. You can find it at DTLA Library. Perfect. Okay. Let's roll up our sleeves and get to the work at hand. Okay. We're going to talk about the 1926 Bertrand Goodhue Library structure, which is now only part of the existing library. We've I've done a number of interviews with several people about the Tom Bradley Wing 1992 remodel, and we've done interviews about the fire. So we know all of that. We're just we're just going to focus on why it took so long for the Library Commission to create a central library downtown and why they chose Bertram Goodhue, and then you're just going to walk us through some of the salient aspects of the Goodhue building. And the last thing we're going to do is you'll walk us through what's left of this, this great axially planned library. So let's start with you telling, answering the question, why did it take so long for the Los Angeles <laughs> Library Commission to create a central library? Uh, okay, glad you asked. Uh, you, by the way, can find the sort of the complete story of this on the Central Library Docents blog. Uh, and just this month published a piece on answering that question, why did it take so long? Um, why it took so long was a lot of interesting infighting around a couple of issues. Um, there was an ongoing debate is a polite word for it, about where to locate the Central Library. Um, it was part of the larger debate that took place during the teens and 20s, essentially, of what's downtown L.A. going to be, where are major municipal buildings going to be, under what circumstances will they be built, and so on. A lot of people were much influenced by what's called the City Beautiful Movement, yes. the, you know, the notion that... Uh, the buildings the city builds shouldn't just serve a specific function, but they really should stand for the city in an important way. They should be beautiful, they should be artistic, and they should be placed in situations where they're central, they can be easily seen from a lot of parts of the city, and so on. All this added up to 
uh, many library backers wanting to put the Central Library in what was then called Central Park. Uh, we now know it as Pershing Square. It was a big, you know, beautiful, open piece of ground. You'd be able to see the library, you know, from a lot of the surrounding neighborhoods. Then you had the other point of view, people who actually lived downtown. Uh, Central Park was one of the few open yeah. pieces of ground yeah. downtown. Uh, it's the same kind of debate that you see in New York around Central Park. I mean, once you start letting nonprofits build their buildings, pretty soon, you know, a lot of your green space is gone. Yeah. That was the argument about where, uh, where it was going to go. And it went around and around for years. Part of this was also linked up to a real interesting little ground battle um, around 1900-1905. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. This whole debate we're talking about, about where to put the central library, this began in the 19th century, just so, just yeah. so everyone's on the same page. So these, these are fights that started back in the yes. 1880s. Yes. Okay. okay. Do you want me to say that again? No. 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 Okay. Um, so um, the... Um, Library Board hired Mary Jones as city librarian. She was the first librarian who really had a background in library science. At this point, the library was located in the old city hall, and it was it was you know expanding rapidly. Clearly, it was going to need its own purpose-built building. Uh, the old city hall being on Broadway yes. at Second, basically. Yes. Um, she came up with a plan for a you know. A, a really very nice building that would that would cover all the needed functions. Um, actually pulled in architects who did sort of sample drawings of this. The city in 1904 passed a referendum uh, and a majority of people said, yes, we do want this new building and we want it to be located in Central Park. We then run into, uh, I don't know if it was a personality fight or what, the library board attempted to fire Mary Jones. What, what year was this? This was in 1904 and 1905. Um, the library board, who I, th I think they saw mismanagement, I'm not exactly sure why, they wanted to hire someone who was more prominent. They hired Charles Fletcher Loomis as city librarian. Mary Jones essentially barricaded herself and refused to leave her office. And what's more, the very powerful Friday morning women's club oh. got behind her. Mar and, Mary Severance and her yeah. and her club, and, yeah. And 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 this this was a real issue for women's rights advocates. You know, late nineteenth, early twentieth century. You're trying to get women in the professions, and and they were very sensitive about. You've got this woman. She's got a library science degree. She's really very competent, and you're going to fire her to hire this guy. Uh, he's a prominent local character, I mean, founder of the Southwest Museum, a totally worthwhile citizen, but no background in running a library whatsoever. They, they just saw this as the kind of typical thing that, that went on. And, and, and had a really very strong inclination to make sure he could smoke cigars at somewhere, place in the library. I'm just going to leave people to interpret. <laughs> he also branded all the books, which is something else to think about. But, but be that as it may, um, local women's clubs had been very strong supporters of building a central library. Um, suddenly, they were no longer such strong supporters of a central library building downtown. 
This is where you begin to get that whole saga of the odyssey of the central library uh, through a you know a bunch of rented quarters in downtown L.A. Oh, can we can we um uh, just quickly on at, at memory go through an inventory of some of these structures? The uh, Metropolitan Building, the John Parkinson Metropolitan Building from 1912. Through twenty four is one of these locations. Yeah, I don't. I don't know all of them. Okay. They, mo- most prominently, um, the old Hamburgers Department Store, which was you know oh, like the the yeah, first department yeah. store in the city. No, that's nineteen oh six. Alfred Rosenheim. Right. Wonderful old building. Uh, and th- once the you know plans for the central library had been sort of put on hold, uh, much of Loomis's tenure as city librarian was spent with the library in the Hamburger Building. Um, and then finally, yeah, it, it went through at least one more location, I believe, and then ended up in the Metropolitan Building before it moved to its its permanent location here at Central. This, the Metropolitan Building, for those that, that don't know this by memory, as, as Ken and I do, Metropolitan Building is at Fifth and Broadway. It's now home of Fias, currently home of Fias Paredes. And, good. All right, so let's, let's, let's keep... Uh, before we leave this, do you just... Is there? Is, I imagine there's a strong connection between temperance, central libraries, and women's suffrage, and 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 Mary's tenure as, as city librarian. I don't. You got me there. Okay. I mean, uh, there. You know, uh, uh, a lot of women's rights issues, yeah. and and a lot of women's rights organizing, political organizing, was done around the issue of temperance because it had such broad appeal to so many different kinds and classes of women. Um, What that meant in terms of L.A., I honestly don't know. That was a good answer, though. Thank you. All right, let's, um, let's get back. So, obviously, there are a lot, there's a lot of struggle to finally arrive at a central library. Let's jump ahead the commission, library commission, forms a committee to go ahead and, and, and make this happen. So why don't we kind of just jump in in the middle of that with, with the committee and their, and their selection and some of the, the top competitors that lose out. Uh, well, a lot of this circles around the need to get a bond issue passed. Okay. I'm not real expert in, you know, the municipal, the the politics of structure in L.A. as compared to other big cities, but you seem to have had to get separate bond issues passed for each major piece of municipal architecture. They finally got a bond measure passed in 1921. I think much of it was due to uh, Everett Perry, who was the city librarian at that point, He'd come in in 1911, actually come in from the New York Public Library, and from 1911 on, vigorously campaigned. They didn't get a bond issue passed until 1921. That says something about how long it took to get anything done downtown. I'm going to break your heart. It still takes about 10 years to get anything done downtown. This is a a classically cheap city. And I don't think it's that people don't want to have a great city. It's that we're stuck with a certain way of doing business. And raising separate funds for each separate buildings uh, seems to, you know, seems to be the rule here. But we've talked about a lot. Okay, that's a a subject we've covered extensively, and I'm totally in agreement with you. Let's keep moving. Let's get to the bond is raised. A committee is formed to pick an architect for the central library. And as I say this, I realize I failed to do what what we both agreed we'd do. 
Tell us about what was on the site, what is now the site of the Center Library. Tell us what was there before. Uh, this was the, um, it was, boy, I don't know the date, Bill, but I'm guessing late 19th century. Yeah, 1888, 1889, yeah. Yeah, yeah the wonderful old photos of this building, and it looks like a classic sort of late Victorian structure. This was the Normal Hill, what was nicknamed the Normal Hill Campus. It was... It was what would become the southern branch, finally, of the University of California. But it was which, the, which would become UCLA. UCLA. Yeah. But it was what was called the State Normal School, which basically means a teacher's college. Right. It then, the, the hill it was sitting on got nicknamed Normal Hill. It then ended up being called the Normal Hill Campus in this kind of interesting reversal of nicknames. Um, the... The school left this campus, God, I can't remember if it was in 1911 or 1914, first went to a campus on Vermont Avenue and then finally out to, uh, to Westwood. But the point was the building, it wasn't vacant. City offices were, were located in the building. But a group of businessmen got together, uh, bought the building and then started selling it to the city on an option basis year by year. I think with the notion it would be a library, maybe an art museum, maybe a war memorial, that, but that, 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 that this, this choice piece of ground was going to be an important municipal structure of some type. And that's why by the early 1920s, this was such an attractive place to begin building because the city essentially already owned it, mm -hmm. so they weren't going to have to go out and yeah. spend a lot of money to buy yet another building site. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Okay. So I think we can now finally, after 50 years, we can get to mm -hmm. the, the question of this committee that has to pick an architect, mm -hmm. and, and I want you, of course, um, we, 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 all, we all know Bertrand Gundy won the yes. competition, but what I don't think a lot of people know, and, and I, I, I was only vaguely aware of, the, the struggle that John Parkinson had to try and, and win this competition. So if you could just give us a little on, on the competition, and then we can get to the building at hand. Um, there wasn't a competition as such. Apparently in 1917, uh, People from the library had already oh. gotten in touch with Goodhue. He had become such a widely known and respected uh, architect on the basis of his work in Balboa Park in San Diego. You the, the 1915 exhibition, yeah, the, the 1915 Panama exhibition. Yeah, yeah the, uh, where he um, essentially... The designs he did really launched the immense kind of southern statewide popularity of the Spanish colonial oh, yep. revival yep. style. Yep. And, and and he was really known and highly appreciated. I mean, it's part of the story of how he ended up with the, getting that major commission at Caltech. And so apparently in 1917, someone had already oh, okay. contacted him. And this was years before the bond issue was even passed. So finally the bond issue is passed. There's a whole segment of people involved in the Library Commission who just thought it was already pretty much decided that Goodhue <laughs> was going to get this commission. Um, 
However, City Council, in particular Mayor George Cryer, who was closely associated with the man a lot of people think of as the person who really built a lot of downtown L.A., John Parkinson, among other things, the lead designer of City Hall. His firm designed Bullock's Wilshire, his firm designed Union Station, and so on. Parkinson thought, by right, this should be his job. Uh, He's the local, he's the man in town, he's now got a lot of work under his belt, and apparently he still started really leaning on connections, not so much in the Library Commission, but really at City Hall. That's how he was hoping to get the job. And they went back and forth and back and forth between Goodhue and whoever else was out there, and whoever else was out there was very clearly John Parkinson. But uh, people really did feel that given there was already this notion in the air that they wanted a quote-unquote Spanish-style building rather than a Beaux-Arts-style building, which was more what Parkinson would would probably have provided, and that Goodhue already had such a good record working in this style that he should be chosen, and eventually he was. Perfect. Okay, good. Okay, we're 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 doing this. Okay. Let's, um, before we start talking about this building, okay. I know this is like such a great lead up, we have to talk about the, the Nebraska Capitol because that's mm-hmm. going to set up all the themes and all the literal salient aspects of this building. So let's step outside of Los Angeles and let's let's talk about the Nebraska Capitol Project, which Goodhue does. Okay, but just uh, maybe a little bit more yeah, back. Yeah, sure. um, uh, Goodhue's career is is really um, interesting, and it, what's sad is he seemed to be entering a whole new phase of his career uh, at around age 50, uh, when he was you know beginning to work on the Nebraska State Capitol building and then soon after would design um, our library. Most of his early career was devoted to what I think you could call sort of Histi- you know, it's kind of imitation historic design. He worked in the neoclassical style. Well, he the, worked the the, the Beaux Arts. I mean, yeah, I exactly. think he was very much yeah, a Beaux Arts architect. So. Yeah. And in, but in particular, working with a kind of modernized version of the Gothic, most of his career output was actually churches on the yeah. East Coast, around New York, uh, around New England states, and so on. About age 50, he really seems to have kind of shed that skin and wanted to begin working in something that was, I don't know if he'd call it more modern, but something that was much more simplified and to let go of that need to really imitate historic styles. And the first fruit of that was his design for the Nebraska State Capitol, which was, interestingly, it was designed before the library, but it was actually built long after the library. And and I'm going to interrupt you. Bertrand Goodhue is in New York, has his offices in New York City. That's that's like this is. I, I'm sorry, I didn't say that mm-hmm. ten minutes ago. Bertrand Goodhue is a New York City architect. Yes, but again, someone who seems to have really fallen in love with yes. California, not the first by by any means, and really pursued work in California um, after his partnership with Ralph Adams uh, Cram sort of collapsed, and they were Cram was really the who brought in all this this work designing churches and so on, and Goodhue had done enough of it, but was interested in doing something else. And I think began to look toward the West and in particular California as a way to kind of revivify his own career as he was leaving the partnership. Um, he competed for a lot of different commissions. He 
got the commission for the Nebraska State Capitol, it became a famous design in architecture circles long before it was built, just on the basis of the wonderful drawings that had been done for the competition. He created a building that had a bit of a Beaux-Arts feel to it. It was like the, you know, the body of the building it was, it was, it was kind of like the, sort of the base of a column. And then you had this tower rising up that you could view, if you were, if you were associated with traditional styles, you could say, oh, that really looks kind of like a modernized Greek column. If you had more affinity for the modern, you'd say, Yes, a skyscraper. The Midwestern prairies are are going to have their first great, truly modern building. So it was a building that, you know, given your predilections, you could view as sympathetic toward history or you could view as a real bold new step into the future. Um, The next building he designed, and it really does have some of those same qualities, is our library. It really has echoes of the past and strong echoes of tradition, but in no way does it imitate anything from the past. And it's it's one of the great modern buildings of the West Coast. Okay, you have to talk about the sculptures. Do you want to talk about, yeah, so sure. let's talk about, talk about, let's talk about Laurie's work in Nebraska, and then we can just jump right in mm-hmm. to Laurie's work here. Okay, um, Goodhue, throughout his career, uh, really held to what, what's essentially a, a traditional belief that important public buildings need to, in particular, have important sculpture that symbolizes and articulates their function for the community. Um, they, beginning around 1900, he had sort of partnered up with Lee Lowry. They met when Lowry was about 20 or something like that, really wanted to get involved with architectural sculpture, came to the firm of Cram and Goodhue, really started partnering up with Goodhue. They worked on a lot of churches together. When Goodhue got the Nebraska Commission, I think the first thing he did was, uh, well, I don't know if you pick up a phone and call at that point or if you picked up a <laughs> postcard. They lived about 50 blocks from one another uh, in uh, in New York City. He immediately wanted to involve Lowry. And they agreed that what they wanted to do was produce a building modern in spirit and completely integrate sculpture into a modern design, something that they saw as really revolutionary and, and really was quite innovative. And Lowry really picked up this feeling from Goodhue. This man is going to design a great building, and I am going to completely integrate my sculpture into his modern design. And there are really two buildings in which they did that together. The first was the Nebraska State Capitol Building, and the second was our library. And unfortunately, at that point, Goodhue, at age 54, dies in April of 1924 of a heart attack, I think very soon after ground was broken for this building. Yeah. yeah. And so his his firm completes. They complete yes. the drawings, they send out a supervising architect and, and the building right. is complete. But Goodhue does is, is not around to see it. Right. And there's something kind of sad about this and Lowry in his correspondence with Hartley Burr Alexander, who did actually did the all the themes and inscriptions for both buildings, um you know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of there's a lot of interesting correspondence between the two men in the Hartley Burr Alexander uh, archives, which are out of Scripps College, as a matter of fact. Really valuable documents. The death of Goodhue left a vacuum, 
uh, in the center of a, of a lot of people's careers, for everybody in his firm, certainly. Sure. But in particular, Alexander and Lowry really come together grieving for the loss of Goodhue and determine they're going to carry on as well as they can what they saw as his plans, in particular for the library. And you really see them going back and forth on what would he have wanted, where do we really need to lean on the library commission to make sure we get this, and so on. And Lowry sees this, in a sense, as the last great collaboration he's going to do with his now-deceased partner. Beautiful. Let's. We um, we're, we're almost there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to. I want to get from the outside mm-hmm. of this library into the inside, and I want to. I, I, and I want you to describe to us the rotunda, the beautiful rotunda, and I want to get to what we agreed we'd end with, which is a quick uh, run through of the original structure with its reading rooms and how it's been transformed in the 1992 Tom Bradley wing reconstruction, understanding that we've exhaustively covered the uh, financing and remodeling of the library with others. So let's just, why don't we start with um, just the the pyramid, and let's just quickly get inside to the rotunda, and we can talk about what people can still see of this this existing Goodhue building. Um, The building as built, a lot of people consider to be very Art Deco, and you could certainly make that argument that it's a... Um, a simple building, rectangular slabs, kind of, you know, grouped around this central tower. For a lot of the planning um, of the building, the central tower was going to be a dome. My feeling is that Goodhue, Goodhue was really a successful architect, and one of the things a truly successful architect has to do is start with whatever the client thinks they want, and move them along to what the architect believes they should want. The client started with a building that was going to look like the, the, the 1915 buildings in Balboa. And there's actually drawings that show you this. I mean, they really, they look like another pavilion as part of that 1915 complex. And he moves them through a series of simpler and simpler drawings. The very last moment is there's still a dome. He removes the dome. He proposes a tower with a topped by a pyramid. This is finally accepted in the in December of uh, 1923 by the Library Commission. Uh, I I think at that point maybe by the Municipal Art Commission. By April of 1924, Goodhue is dead. Wow. I mean, there's a there's a a small gap in time, but he's already convinced them to build a great Art Deco building. Um, The exterior, where most of the sculpture is, is in many ways more modern. You get to the interior. The interior, um, main level, the working heart of what was the original library, um, was a rotunda. Um, It's interesting, from the exterior, you have a tower with a pyramid. From the interior, you have the interior of a dome. I wonder if he had lived longer, if he might have changed the interior design a bit. I believe you. I believe you. Um, let's or let's let's open this up on my smartphone. I'll put the micro yeah. down for a second. Okay. Okay. All right. Here you go. Okay. Okay. So we have on my smartphone for you to look at. We have a gr- which is which is available on your website, 
which we'll link to, yes. the new architecture website mm-hmm. for the library. We have a ground plan. Why don't you just quickly, looking at this ground plan, tell us how this original Goodhue ground plan has slightly morphed in the 1992 reconstruction. Uh, yeah. Most of Goodhue's design is still here, and, and let me emphasize this. You come down to look at this building. Um, a large part of the original design is still there. What's missing is the original east wing. Um, stretching out onto the east lawn in Goodhue's original design was a two-story wing. It was built around a patio. It housed art and music on the top level, the children's department on the lower level, and then built around a patio. Most of that wing was demolished in order to build the new Tom Bradley wing, although the old children's reading room and a space directly above it were preserved. And the new Bradley wing is actually kind of, it's it's really interesting to go look at because the new Bradley wing is kind of wrapped around the old children's reading room. And it's a very intriguing alignment of old and new. Um, what the literature room? The, the literature room? Okay, the, um, okay, what, what oh. we're looking at, you know, you I'm sorry. You probably need to ask me this again. I'm not sure. Well, just just keep listening. going. Let's just okay. let's just keep going. What's so? What's here and what's not? Um, okay. Um, all of the uh, the rotunda is still here. All of the original reading rooms that were grouped around the rotunda are still here. There were stacks in each corner of the rotunda. Uh, that's, by the way, where the, the, the terrible arson fire started in 1986. The stacks are now gone, and they've been incorporated into what amounts to the adaptive reuse of most of those spaces. But the spaces remain as they were. Um, uh, one of the most intriguing, by the way, I think, um, aspects of what's been done in all this is the old fiction reading room. The fiction reading room is now this very innovative library for teens called Teenscape. And what they've done is really dropped down new structures into this wonderful old room. The design, by the way, done by Robert Coffey, who, who really did... I interviewed Bob once, and he said, you know, it was like building a ship in a bottle. The bottle had to remain intact, but a whole new ship had to be created inside the bottle. The intact bottle is the beautiful old fiction reading room. The new ship is Teenscape, which is a wonderful modern design. Um, You can, you know, walk across the old North Vestibule, which is exactly as it was uh, designed and created by Goodhue, to the old uh, Science and Industry Reading Room. That's now the Getty Gallery. They have wonderful rotating exhibits in that gallery. Um, Two other major components of the old History Reading Room and Sociology are now the Children's Department. I'm I'm going to interrupt you. These these rooms are beautiful. The children's reading room is just absolutely mm-hmm. breathtakingly gorgeous, and it is exactly as good you designed it. Yeah. It's um, the current children's department, for most of its life, was the history reading room, and it was, it was seen as the most important space after the rotunda and decorated as such. It had a wonderful painted ceiling, um, virtu- wonderful murals by Albert Herter. Virtually everything remains except the old 
you know, long reading tables were removed and there are now low wooden bookcases. You have um, actually replicas of the beautiful old stanchion lamps that were there designed by Lee Lowry. Um, Unfortunately, and boy, this shows how people's attitude towards uh, preservation has changed. Many of the original old bronze lighting fixtures were sold for scrap in the late 1960s and then reproduced at very generous expense during the late 80s and early 90s when that the, the whole Goodhue building was being restored. You did it. You did it. You did it. We're it? done. Okay. You did it. You, abs- you nailed it. Thank you. That was absolutely fantastic. This is a great interview. We're not done. We got We got We got to do the lead. We got to do the lead out. Okay. okay. So I need you to properly. I need you to pr- tell us again who you are and about the docent program and how people can come down and get a tour, wander through on their own as mm-hmm. they can from this great walkthrough through Venice, but also specifically come down and get a tour from your from the docent program you are deeply involved in. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay, I'm Ken in Brazil. I'm a member of the um, LAPL Central Library docents. We do free tours. Every day the library is open, and happily, that's now seven days a week. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was, it, for a while, we weren't doing any tours on Sunday and Monday because the library was closed. Yeah. But thanks to the passage of Measure L, the library is now, now truly back in business. Uh, Monday through Friday, we do tours at 1230. You just have to meet their walk-ins. You just, you don't, no reservations. You meet us at the bookstore. Uh, whatever the size of the group, you go on about an hour tour of the library. Saturdays, we do the same tour, 11 and 2 p.m. Sundays at 2 p.m. And we have a special new tour of the McGuire Gardens, Saturdays at 1230. Uh, and you can find out more information about our tour program. You, you, you know, if you've got a group, you can reserve a special group time and so on on the library website. Perfect. Kenan, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much. My name is Erin Geddes, and I'm here in Riverside City Hall, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. And we're done. We really are. We're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our latest podcast of You Can't Eat the Sunshine. This is the week of May 25th, 2015. Our guests this week were one. Romy Wiley. She is co-founder and director of the Caltech Architecture and Tour Service. She is also um, she's, she's also I'm, I'm, I forgot to mention she wrote she was written several books. She of course has written a book about the architecture of Caltech, Caltech architecture, um, tile to modern stone, something like that. It's a very good book, exhaustive. What you would expect from the woman that put the program together. Uh, she also has a book that got published just a couple years ago, Loving Andrew, A 52-Year Story of Down Syndrome. Uh, she's obviously passionate about this. This is a, excuse me, this is a book about um, her adult son who had Down Syndrome, who died. Yeah, not, not too long ago. Yeah, and this is a book about his life. So she, she really is passionate. We're going to put a link to all of her books um, on, on the website. Uh, we'll put a link to the tour services through Caltech. The schedule will be there. Schedule a tour. It'll be great. Canon Canon was our second guest. She is a docent at the Los Angeles 
Central Library, other better known as the Richard J. Reardon Central Library. Which better known. Better. Oh. Well, I, I am supposed to use that term, and I haven't until now. Oh. I'm glad I got it in once. Uh, she's a docent. She's a really good docent. She's she's like one Capital of my, D. She's okay. she's. She, she, Wow. You played me that interview. I wasn't with you when you recorded it. I I was Um, jaw dropped. Yeah. So she's, both of these ladies have got it figured out. Okay. They are, they're the canonical people to go to. Caltech, Central Library, you're, you're done. Good Hughes legacy is in good hands. Yeah, it really is. So those were our two interviews. Um, I hope you liked it. I I didn't, I don't think I forgot anything about Ken and we'll, we'll put some of her blog posts up. Mm -hmm. They're very good. It's fantastic. Okay, so we're done. Kim, you're going to bring us home with some tours. We like to hear from you, like eighth graders from Michigan. We <laughs> feedback loop, Kim. Well, we do like to hear from eighth graders from Michigan, but like, use your mom's email address so we can write you back because you, you've got some pretty heavy filters on your school email, and we can't tell you. Uh, we, we tried to recommend John Leake's book about the serial killer who lived, you know, at the Cecil in the '90s, but oh well. Yes, you can send us an email at you can't eat the sunshine at gmail.com or through the contact link at www.esoteric.com. Use your mom's email address. You can also, of course, make a comment on uh, the iTunes page related to this podcast. If you give us a rating, more people might see it, and that's always a good thing because, you know, if you're into podcasts, you go to iTunes and it says, oh, people who listen to You Can't Eat the Sunshine also listen to, I don't know, Eat Your Heart Out, Dead to Molly. That podcast about? Charles Phoenix's podcast. <laughs> Charles doesn't have a podcast, I don't think. He should. Yeah, everyone should. You you encourage people to start podcasts, and then once they do, it oh, completely... Oh my, oh my God. You're Susan. not allowed to say. I'm not allowed to say? I, I think it's like it's on a need-to-know basis. Later. Okay. Later. Don't, don't, don't be telling... But Richard has encouraged people to start podcasts. Here's the important thing, though. We're, we're a tour company. Right? That's we what we bus, do. We, we give, give bus, bus tours, tours, and we're so happy about the LA Times feature. You know, it's been a while since we've been able to talk about the tamale. Policy grinds slowly. So we have a discount coupon on our tours through midnight on Jan- uh, June 1. If you use the code Save the Tamale, you can get um, up to two discounted tour tickets, $18 off, which works out to 40 bucks on a regularly scheduled $58 bus tour. So... What's your excuse? Come ride. You can actually get on the Eastside Babylon bus on May the 30th, which will take you to the tamale. You can see for yourself how darn cute it is and take your picture with the tamale. Tamale selfies are the wave of the future. That's a tour about some really unhinged true crime. So, of course, we have to put the Daffius building in East L.A. on it just to take some of the sting out of the weird, horrible stories that I'll share. We'll also go to Evergreen Cemetery. And speaking of the Cecil Hotel, we'll go to Hubbard Street, where neighbors... Hubbard Avenue, I'm sorry. Hubbard Avenue Avenue. and... Indiana? In uh, Princeton. Okay, Princeton, where neighbors brought serial killer Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker, down after he tried to carjack a, a vintage Mustang. So many good stories on that tour, and a walk through Evergreen Cemetery to visit our friends the Carnies at the Pacific Coast Showman's Association grave, which is deeply misunderstood by almost anyone who has ever talked about it. Um, but, 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 but except for you. Except, well, I'm very interested in Carnies. So that's a tour. We also have, we don't have a ton of tours in, in June because kind of heading into the holiday season. Well, what, and what, what, what happened is um, we uh, decided, uh, we just decided we needed a break every now and then. Yeah. We just 
twice a year we take two weeks off straight, and that sort of lets us recharge mm -hmm. our batteries, which is very important. Right, but there's no shame in that, and again? Uh, um, there's, it's actually really important. I would say it's the opposite of shame. Yes. Uh, and again, you know, through June 1st, you can use the Save the Tamale coupon code and, and save on any of these tours. It doesn't have to be a tour happening before June 1st. You just have to buy your ticket before then. So Blood and Dumplings is a very, very occasional tour. We're only giving that about once a year now. And that twice? Well, we didn't give it last year. We gave it once last year. Anyway, San Gabriel Valley Crime Tour. A lot of really wacky, off-the-chart stories. Not just crime. Crime and offbeat social history. Uh, the Lion Farm, the American Nazi Party, James Elroy's mother's murder. Oh, my gosh, so sad. Um, well, Crawford's Corner. Crawford's Corner is now a big part of the story. El Monte creativity, off the charts. Just really interesting people out in the San Gabriel Valley. And, of course, a wonderful dumpling picnic at... Um, one of the most extraordinary children's playgrounds, a California landmark, yeah. um, Vincent Lugo Park, which is filled with giant sea creatures from the 1960s that you can clamor over while we prepare the dumpling snack. So that is a really special thing. And selfie with a sea lion. Why not? Oh, the biker gang's almost here, so I better wrap this up. Weird West Adams is June the 27th. That is a tour about crime and oddities and delight in the West Adams, many, many micro-neighborhoods below the 10 freeway, just to the west of downtown L.A. We'll talk about some of the, the more strange and awful crimes that occur. We will walk through, uh, now it's known as Angeles Rosedale. Rosedale, one of the earliest cemeteries in Los Angeles, a nice companion piece to our walk through Evergreen, which is of about the same period out on uh, the Boyle Heights side of the river. And on this tour, Richard will also talk a lot about Housing covenants, a, a former, formerly very common law in Southern California and much of America where you could, uh, you were um, restricted from selling your house to people of different races. And these laws were actually taken all the way to the Supreme Court in part because of the work of some really right on LA people. And so we will talk about all of that as we travel through West Adams and see some beautiful houses and some terrible crime scenes. Then, Flashing ahead to July the 11th, it is Pasadena Confidential with Crimebo the Clown, a tour about black magic, rocket science, and ridiculously wealthy people who have really inappropriate hobbies and pets. Uh, really fun, exciting, rollicking, no-holds-barred sort of tour. And we do highly recommend that you join us for that one, especially if you're interested in consciousness expansion. On July the 18th, it is our most popular crime bus tour, The Real Black Dahlia. And um, that is a tour that follows in the footsteps of Best Short, the victim in the still unsolved 1947 Black Dahlia murder. And we don't really look at uh, many of the theories about who might have killed her because there's so much to do just following in her footsteps and looking at the LAPD investigation, which proceeded in tandem with the journalistic investigations, mostly coming out of the Hearst papers, and going to places where she, we know she was and talking about how she, as this incredibly sad and mysterious person, revealed herself through this investigation. And uh, there is nothing more poignant, I think, than taking a group of people to the site where her body was found and talking about the development of the beautiful Lamert Park neighborhood, which was not a neighborhood at the time of the, of the murder. And uh, wrapping up July, we have Haunts of a Dirty Old Man, the Charles Bukowski's Los Angeles bus tour. I like that tour, Richard. It's a lovely tour. Uh, takes, like us, tour. takes us from downtown through Crown Hill into East Hollywood and talks about how even at 50 years old, someone can 
transformed themselves into a world-renowned author, not just a locally famous author, which he certainly was at the age of 50. And if you like Bukowski, you'll never find a nicer group of Bukowski people than get on that bus. So join us too, and don't forget that coupon code, because we'd like you to join us. Save the tamale. Kim, thank you. I want to thank everyone at home for listening to, and I want to remind you that you can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between. South